I'm Dr. Adonia Lugo, and I'm really excited to be here as a speaker today. Um, I am the Interim Program Chair of the Urban Sustainability Department at Antioch University, Los Angeles. Uh, but in the past, I taught here at Cal State LA, and I think this is a really great community, and um, it's great to have an opportunity to be back on campus. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about uh, my background as a cultural anthropologist and then get into the content of my talk today. So um, I got my PhD from UC Irvine back in 2013 and um, as a graduate student um, I ended up focusing primarily on transportation and specifically looking at the intersections of race and class and transportation. And how is it that here in Southern California, we are engaging in a lot of um, different kind of messaging as we're out there traveling. So from a sustainability standpoint, you might think this is a really good region for uh, using low carbon transportation, such as biking and walking and public transit. But those modes of transportation are heavily stigmatized in this region. Um, we have a long history of investing more in highways and roads for private automobiles than we do in mass transit systems. And um, what I started encountering um, when I became a bicycle commuter um, in the LA area in 2007 was that being out there on a bicycle, you're kind of disrupting things. You're not acting the way that you're supposed to. And that's what really got me thinking about this stuff. And the fact that there were people like me who were bicycling because we thought it was a good thing for the environment or for ecological reasons. But the majority of people who ride bikes in LA and actually around the country are doing it because they don't have other options. It's the only thing they can afford. And so um, as an anthropologist, what we focus on in my field is the cultural side of things, the human side of things, and how it is that the attitudes and um, cultural values that we get raised with shape our understanding of the world around us. And so um, over the course of doing my PhD work, I ended up developing um, into a certain kind of voice within the bicycle movement and around sustainable transportation as a whole, um, looking at these race and class questions and how do we do more to uh, take them into account with planning for sustainable transportation systems in the future. So that's a little preface about me. Um, as I said, I'm over at um, Antioch University, Los Angeles, which is in Culver City. Um, I was born and raised in San Juan Capistrano down in South Orange County. Um, I identify as Chicana, mixed race, Mexican-American. And um, I'm gonna go ahead and get started with my presentation here. So, infrastructure systems that we're interacting with on a daily basis but not necessarily thinking about too much, we tend to talk about those and relate to them um, from an urban planning standpoint as physical systems, right? So you might be thinking about um, transmission lines where electricity is traveling or um, aqueducts that are bringing water into the region or our sewer systems, which are very important for making sure that we have sanitation in our dense urban environments. But um, what I have found, and a lot of other researchers looking at the life cycle of infrastructure systems have found, is that there are also social components to infrastructure. 
Um, not only are they something we're interacting with every day, they're designed by people, they're maintained by people. And sometimes when they fall apart because of a disaster or because of political turmoil or um, whatever's going on, people end up having to step in and kind of play the role of infrastructure. Um, in different ways just to get their needs met and take care of their families and communities. So for a number of years there have been scholars um, writing about concepts of um, the social side of infrastructure or what does it mean to look at infrastructure as something social. And the image I put in here is from a mural by Diego Rivera that's in Mexico City that um, I don't think you can see the detail too good in this image. It's a little dark uh, but Within this mural, uh, there are many components, and a lot of it has to do with kind of looking at how does life and industry and culture and politics, how does all that stuff fit together? And Rivera was one of a number of muralists who were very interested in promoting um, workers and moving toward a more um, equitable landscape in terms of uh, people getting paid for their work and ownership of industry and things like that. Um, so I think it's just a good image that illustrates a little bit how this stuff is intertwined. You can't really think about people systems as separate than these big industrial systems. So, since my focus area is primarily transportation or mobility, um, let's think about what some different mobility infrastructures are that we're familiar with. Um, this is an image of from that same trip to Mexico City I took in 2017, and you've got a roadway, you've got train infrastructure there. Um, I'm on a, a bicycle and pedestrian overpass that takes you over this big highway. Um, so oftentimes when transportation infrastructure and transportation systems come up, these are the kinds of things that we're talking about. These large-scale, developed, physical uh, infrastructures that allow us to get from point A to point B. Um, what I have focused on primarily is, uh, as I said, the human side of things and how it is that people actually relate in those street spaces and how um, we carry certain ideas with us as we travel. So I work with the concept of human infrastructure. And um, what this image here is about is that when we're talking about uh, a particular person's trip, so maybe you know someone's commute or the trip that they take to run errands or that sort of thing, um, typically in transportation studies, the approach is to, again, focus very much on the built environment. How is that person traversing the built environment? What are the types of uh, infrastructure that they're encountering? But from the research that I've done, um, focusing more on uh, different kinds of road users and different modes of transportation people might be using in the same street spaces, um, I've been one of a number of scholars who actually think we need to make it a little more complicated than that. Um, clearly, the built environment is part of what your trip is going to be like, but there are other components involved as well. You have a kind of vehicle you might be operating, or maybe you're just walking on your own two feet. Maybe you're on an electric scooter. Maybe you're in a, a, a like carpool or rideshare van or something like that. That's going to shape how you're experiencing that built environment. And then you're in a particular kind of body, and we're not in the same kinds of bodies. There are a lot of differences in how each of us is allowed to travel 
or the kinds of limitations on our travel that we might encounter based on who we are in terms of um, these social categories of race and gender, class. Um, there are issues around ability. If you're someone who is a wheelchair user, then absolutely you're not going to be encountering the built environment in the same way that I am as someone who, you know, is able to um, get around on my two feet. So the human infrastructure idea is that there's more going on than just the built environment. And if we're interested in figuring out how to make our sustainability, I mean, our transportation systems more sustainable, then we need to look at these human elements as well. We need to look at the social and cultural stuff that shapes our travel choices, in addition to trying to make those physical systems more sustainable. So I've been involved uh, for the last, uh, how many years, three years, in an advocacy and urban planning conversation around this concept of mobility justice. And um, that has been a way for me as a scholar to be talking with folks who are um, advocating for safer streets in their communities or who are trying to um, figure out how to make improvements to our neighborhoods without just immediately helping to contribute to displacement and gentrification and things like that. There's a bunch of us who um, want to challenge the kind of way that transpor transportation planning has been done in our country. And um, from my perspective, it really is a project of creating um, a human infrastructure conversation. Like we're trying to highlight that there's more going on in the street and there's more going on when we're traveling than just those concrete elements. Um, that have historically been the way that we relate to transportation. So this is an image from a group called People for Mobility Justice, which I'll talk about more in a little bit, that um, I think illustrates all of these different things that come together in the conversation of mobility justice. So um, in terms of the history of justice movements and transportation, um, there is a long history in this country of um, a project called environmental justice. How many of you are familiar with environmental justice? Ever heard that term? So environmental justice is a project that started um, really in the, in the 1980s when communities who were experiencing a lot of harm because of pollution, because they had um, you know, big factories or uh, you know, different kinds of trash processing facilities right in their neighborhoods. And uh, researchers started finding that sometimes there were uh, hot spots where a bunch of folks were getting cancer or a bunch of children were getting asthma. And it was because of this exposure that they had to these harmful, um, polluting uh, uh, institutions right there um, at home. Here in LA, we have a lot of examples of those kind of environmental justice issues. Um, for example, close by in um, Boyle Heights in East LA, there has been a problem for a long time with um, an old battery factory that let a lot of chemicals leach into the, um, the soil. And so there's a lot of homes in the area that actually have toxic soil. So families shouldn't be growing any food there. Um, kids are getting exposed when they're out there playing. Um, and that's just one example. We have a lot of examples like that. So the environmental justice movement 
really gained steam in the 1990s and started identifying a lot of these kinds of cases around the country and also just made this really strong connection between environmentalism, which you know is about uh, trying to protect the earth, trying to protect our natural systems, making a connection between that and urban communities. Because for a lot of the 20th century, when people would talk about um, environmentalism or conservation, they'd really be talking about spaces outside of cities. They meant national forests, national parks. The idea was that we needed to preserve these spaces away from cities because our cities are just these, you know, dirty, bad, corrupted, you know, polluted zones. And what the environmental justice movement, activists from these different communities who started networking across the country, what they said to that was, well, wait a second, our primary environment is where we live. Um, it's where we live, it's where we work, it's where we play. So it's not just a matter of making sure that envi environmental conditions are protected away in these national parks that maybe people in our communities never even get to go to. We also need to make sure that our schools are safe environments and healthy environments. We need to make sure that people have access to housing where they're not gonna be poisoned just by you know, using yard space. So the environmental justice movement is something that's been really influential for a lot of other um, urban social movements since the, the 90s. And so something that developed here in LA, specifically making a connection between environmental justice and transportation is a group called the Bus Riders Union, which um, got formed in the mid 90s because they felt that Metro, our transit authority, was not actually working to serve the needs of bus riders. And one of their primary concerns is that, I mean, if you're a bus rider in LA, that shouldn't be a surprise to you that actually Metro is not that concerned about serving your needs as a bus rider. But their, their big issue in the 90s was that Metro was starting to invest money in building out the rail system. So at that time, the only um, rail line that had been built was the blue line out to Long Beach and they were just starting to do um, construction on the purple line and the red line and all that kind of stuff. So this group, the Bus Riders Union said, well, wait a second, you're taking all this money from bus service, you're actually cutting bus lines in order to spend money on these train systems, but actually the people who are riding the buses are primarily people of color. And so they actually, managed to sue Metro under the Civil Rights Act, um, which says that federal money cannot be distributed in a way that has a disproportionately negative effect on uh, communities of color. It's race is one of what are called protected categories where money from the government is not supposed to be used in ways that are gonna benefit one group more than another. So they actually were able to get um, a federal judge to say that they were right and that Metro was discriminating. And so for a number of years, the Bus Riders Union was able to have an impact on um, making sure that there was better bus service in LA. They played a big role in getting Metro to shift toward um, natural gas buses so that there would be less um, emissions from buses. And um, the Bus Riders Union is the major reason why bus fares are still as low as they are in LA. I don't know how many of you are bus riders, but um, it's a buck 75 to do a one-way trip on Metro. And um, that's really cheap relative to how much it costs in other US cities, that is really cheap. And it was actually only $1.25 up until I think 2011. Um, and that was just, you know, 
unheard of. You know, all other major U.S. cities, it's at least two dollars. So, um, so here in LA, we have this really strong legacy of making a connection between uh, what's happening with our transportation systems and how that relates to um, this legacy of structural inequality we have around race and class. So that area gets referred to as transportation justice. So transportation justice grew out of environmental justice. And then where we are today is talking about mobility justice because something that um, ended up happening with the idea of transportation justice is that they ended up focusing a lot on, uh, again, things like the actual physical infrastructure of a city and how transportation systems were serving or not serving low-income people and people of color. And um, something happened in 2014 that really highlighted to a number of us who were working on promoting sustainable transportation, things like bicycling and walking, um, that when this thing happened, we really started to question a lot of how much of a focus there was on these built systems within transportation advocacy. And um, what happened was the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. So in 2014, there were a number of very high profile instances of either black men and boys getting murdered by police or court, court cases that were acquitting police officers um, or other people of um, shooting and killing black men and boys. And so for the first time in my life, um, I started seeing all over the news, well, I guess actually I was alive in 1992, so it was around the news then too. But anyway, for the first time in a long time, this issue of police violence specifically against black communities was you know, being talked about all over the place. It was a really big deal. And so for those of us who were working on street safety issues in bicycling and walking and things like that, we couldn't help but see a connection between one kind of safety and another kind of safety. So um, for example, in the world of um, trying to make safer streets, uh, usually when we say safe, what we're referring to is not getting hit by a car. Um, and that's key, right? Like people should not be getting hit by cars. Here in LA, we have a huge problem of um, people killing each other with their cars or killing people with their cars. There's a whole hit and run epidemic going on right now. It's nasty. So that's a big deal, right? When it comes to street safety, like let's work so that people are not getting hit by cars. However, that's not the only kind of unsafety that someone might be experiencing in a public space. And so the Black Lives Matter movement, which was bringing all this attention to specifically how um, black bodies are vulnerable to uh, racialized policing, where we really do not have you know, a lot of control as community residents over how police are applying laws and things like that. Um, so they were just doing a very good job of illustrating that this was an issue of street safety because these instances where people um, had been killed by police were taking place in public space. It was happening in the middle of the street. So how could those of us who were really concerned about street safety and sustainable transportation and sustainable streets, how could we not be seeing a relationship between that kind of unsafety and the work we were doing? So. That was really the origin of us looking for a term that would start to explain um, what we meant 
broader than just transportation systems. Because again, when you say transportation, oftentimes what people are thinking of is the infrastructure side of it. They're thinking of you know, roadways, rail, all that kind of stuff. So we started using mobility because for us, that was a way of saying, we're not just talking about people who are you know, actively using a transportation system. We're talking about people moving through the world and what kind of conditions they're encountering. And the fact that we're not encountering the same conditions because we're not traveling in the same bodies. So, um, so some of the things that we see as coming together around mobility justice include um, racial justice issues, indigenous communities, um, the elderly, youth, uh, working toward uh, economic justice, thinking about the safety or unsafety of undocumented communities, just all the different ways that people might experience vulnerability when they're out there in our public spaces. And the theory here for me, so if you remember going way back that I got started in this because um, I was interested in figuring out how to make bicycling seem better for people in LA and wanting to see how we could you know, move toward more sustainable transportation here. The theory is, if we can actually build up this, um, this social movement or this human infrastructure around understanding the real kinds of unsafety that are out there that we need to address, then we can address them and then we're gonna get to streets where people actually do feel safe traveling in different ways without needing that protection of a private automobile because so much of that um, impulse to be traveling in a private automobile here in Southern California uh, you know, we really need to look at where that's coming from, the kinds of insecurity that people are living with. Maybe, you know, they're facing housing insecurity. Maybe they're not sure they're going to be able to pay rent. Maybe, you know, they're working three jobs because that's what it takes to actually, um, you know, make sure that there's food on the table. Maybe they're like Cal State LA students I remember talking to who would work one shift at a job and then come to school and then go work a shift at a totally different job. So there's a lot of reasons that people rely on cars in this region that don't have to do with, you know, them hating the environment or thinking that like, you know, they shouldn't have more options. It's just that we have put these pressures on people that sometimes make a car the only solution that they have. So, so that's the difference between a mobility justice approach to sustainable transportation and a more conventional approach. So the more conventional approach to sustainable transportation would be to say, you should choose, you know, how come you're not choosing to bike to work? You know, how come you're not making a choice that is more sustainable? And it's more like acting like we all have an equal opportunity to make those choices. Um, from a mobility justice standpoint, that's not true. We're actually operating um, with a lot of different pressures on us and it's not the same from person to person. And what might make a safe street for one community doesn't necessarily make a safe street for another community. So just relying on design changes to streets and physical infrastructure to get us to that more safe landscape for everybody is leaving some stuff out of the picture. So these are some of the groups that I've been involved in that are working on this mobility justice idea. So here in Los Angeles, we have People for Mobility Justice, which is a group um, that actually got started back in 2008. Um, we started doing outreach with um, Spanish-speaking bicycle users. We would um, post up at day laborer centers and talk to people there about their experiences riding bikes. 
And then we've changed our name a few times over the years. At first we were called City of Lights, and then we were called Multicultural Communities for Mobility. And then last year we became People for Mobility Justice because people were really excited about, people within the organization were really excited about um, taking on mobility justice like intentionally as a project. So we are um, a very small organization. I'm one of the advisory board co-chairs. So that means I help out a lot with our financial management and supervision and things like that. We have um, four people on staff and I'd be happy to chat with people more one-on-one -on -one if you're interested in learning about um, what we have going on. But we do a lot of work around um, bicycle safety education in English and Spanish. Um, we also are gonna be opening up a space soon to do bicycle repair services at a um, low-income housing facility operated by one of the um, state's biggest um, homeless service providers. So we're just always looking for ways to bring the sustainable transportation conversation into spaces where that's not necessarily what the focus is to, to help make a case for um, you know giving people more options on terms that make sense to them. And then another group I'm part of is called the Untokening Collective. And that is a national group um, that started in 2016. Um, ever since then, we've had a national convening every year. And what we do in those um, convenings is it's a bunch of people who work in transportation and mobility, um, either at the government level, maybe they're like a planner with a, um, a, a transportation agency with a city or something like that. Maybe they work for a private firm that does transportation planning. Maybe they work for an advocacy organization. But what we have in common, besides being focused on transportation and mobility, is we're also people of color. Um, or women or queer folks. The kind of main way that um, we kind of define our community is that we're individuals who have a lived experience being part of marginalized communities. So we actually know from our own lives what it's like to not always have your streetscape designed for your needs or to not always have the access to opportunity that you might hope that you had. Um, and so we think it's really important for the people who are leading the conversation around transportation and mobility to be aware on that lived experience level of what our most marginalized communities are dealing with. Um, and we call ourselves the untokening because a lot of us have had experiences in the past of being invited into conversations or invited onto committees or things like that. Um, and feeling that we were just there as a token, um, which means someone who maybe like checks a box, maybe because of your race or your gender or something like that, you are um, brought to the table, but then uh, people aren't really that interested in hearing what you have to say, or they're not gonna be very happy if what you have to say is different from what they already thought. So a lot of us had been through experiences like that. And so we thought, what if we could create something else? What if we could have an untokening so we could have our own conversation about what our values are for transportation and mobility justice um, without feeling like we're always having to fit into somebody else's conversation. So um, as I said, that's a group of people who are uh, scattered around the country and I'd be happy to share more about that with anybody afterwards. Um, but that is my presentation about uh, human infrastructure for mobility justice and what we're trying to figure out in terms of creating a sustainable transportation future that um, 
actually has undone and addressed some of those structural inequality issues that continue to, to be with us as we do our planning and engineering. So thank you. Um, questions? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you're involved with the bike community. Mm -hmm. Are you still involved with the bike community? Not really. I found the bike community to be kind of a tough space to be in. It can be very, like, there's a lot of not very niceness, if yeah. you know what I mean. I'm, I'm assuming you're part of the bike well, community, I so you know. Be, I used to be a bike messenger in downtown LA, mm -hmm. and that whole culture was, you know, trying to get people to use a bicycle, but then it kind of became cool. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of bike bets, mm. you know, and that started causing a lot of uh, divisions amongst, you know, like our own community because the young oh. kids are coming to see our stuff and mm -hmm. the gangs involved and whatever. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very difficult. And, but there's still events that go on. I don't know if you'd be interested. There's a event called, called Cranks Giving, mm -hmm. which is a bicycle uh, fundraiser for para los niños, mm -hmm. and so you just ride around LA, you know, still promoting the cycling, but it is dangerous. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's an alley cat, right? Yeah, somewhat, <laughs> you know, it's not a race who gets there first, it's, you know, to get food for kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you should maybe, you know, look into it again, because it's still cool. I live next to a place called the Bicycle Kitchen. Have mm -hmm. you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like what you guys want to do, right? In the community space, let people come in and work on their bikes. Mm -hmm. So um, there's still room for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I um, one of the big projects that I worked on during my dissertation field work, in addition to helping to start what's now People for Mobility Justice, was co-designing an event called Ciclavia. That's an open street event, and um, what that is is they close down um, streets to cars a few times a year so that people can try out riding bicycles and walking. So you know about Ciclavia. Um, so, so yeah, I was for a few years really like embedded in the networks of people who were, um, you know, like Jimmy Lazama at the Eco Village, co-founded the Bike Kitchen. I lived at the Eco Village, and oh, so okay. those a lot of those people are still like my community. But in terms of promoting bicycling specifically, I feel like there definitely was this thing that occurred. So the Ciclavia event has been going on since 2010, and um, it is it, I think it helped to make bikes seem cool in LA in a way that didn't necessarily lead to a lot of substantive change. It's just like bikes were cool, but it's not necessarily easier to ride a bike. So um, what I saw happen was that the city or the politicians, you know, became a little more friendly to having these bicycle events, but then that meant the bike community just got more like they became more political insiders and they haven't really been pushing for change in the same way. So I'm definitely interested in how we can um, work more on um, uplifting, you know, the longstanding bike communities that are out there. Like in South LA, and East LA, for example, there are a lot of um, custom bike clubs in the same way that there are custom car clubs. There are people who have these really elaborate um, cruiser bikes and um, choppers that they ride around together in parades and things like that. Um, but that's not necessarily what you see promoted when people are promoting bicycling. Um, mostly what I see is kind of an image of a, a very like new developed area and um, you know things that would look not out of place in any city. They don't look very specifically Los Angeles. So I think we have a ways to go here with 
really even like embracing our own local cultures of sustainable transportation. Other questions? Mm -hmm. um, I remember you mentioned that you have the wide educational system. Um, so the question is, uh, are you considering other um, transportation vehicles such as a scooter, electrical scooter, uh, skateboards, or any other Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the projects that I'm part of, more and more we've tried to shift into talking about ourselves as multimodal instead of just specifically focusing on bikes. Um, but at the same time, mostly what I'm engaged in is the network building among people who are working in those kinds of spaces. So I don't end up interfacing very much with the kinds of um, mobility technologies themselves. It's more about... Um, going to uh, be a speaker or coaching or doing education with people around the, um, the need for more um, engagement with communities. Before we're spending our public dollars in a neighborhood on transportation, there should be much more of a relationship and understanding of what the problems are in a neighborhood in the neighborhood residents' own terms. And usually that's something that happens much later in the process. The city might decide we're going to spend money on a project like this, and then they um, contract with a firm, and then they're you know, usually far along with the project before they actually do a community engagement process. So mostly my work is on the, like, how do we structure those kinds of things side and not as much on the, the physical um, uh, mobility technology side. But for sure, I think actually a lot of bicycle organizations in the last few years have been trying to figure out how to take on the broader landscape of technologies that are out there because it's not just bicycles. And, you know, um, so I think people are trying to trying to see how to how to build community around that. Um, for a lot of people in the bicycle world, uh, those newer technologies were seen as a threat and I think may still be seen as a threat because they, and, and I think this is something that is legitimate. Um, when you're talking about these electrical, um, small scale, you know, micro mobility technologies, you are introducing a battery, you're introducing a lot of stuff that um, is going to end up becoming e waste that you don't have if you're just talking about mobility devices like a bicycle where the person is the source of the energy that's making it move. So, um, so there are, I think, some concerns about how, um, you know, when we, when we don't talk about, like, for example, there's the term zero emissions often gets used to describe um, micromobility technologies. And if we dig into that a little deeper, I think we'll find that that's actually not true, that there's a lot of emissions involved in producing those technologies and getting them to the cities where they're being used. And so I think we need to, consider having a um, more um, life cycle analysis of how we're using resources. But, um, but for sure, more and more people are recognizing on the advocacy side that the safety issues someone on a scooter might be dealing with are very similar to the safety issues someone on a bicycle would be dealing with. Mm -hmm. well, I think we may be at time. Do we end at one o'clock? Yeah, so if anybody else has questions, feel free to ask. I'm going to go ahead and finish my sandwich here. Um, but thanks so much for having me.